Hey guys, hope you're doing well. Um, for this episode, I had the luxury of speaking to Kalai Bolo of Obscura Film, and it's genuinely one of the best conversations I've had with with anyone on this podcast. I think it was terrific and literally up there one of my not that I rank them, but it's one of my favorites. I I thought it was amazing, and um, we covered her history and how she got into film and her importance that she sheds light on things regarding to representation and telling our own stories. And I hope you guys enjoy it. One disclaimer. Um, we're getting better at trying to get the audio right. We had a bit of audio challenges when we were recording this. So, you know, just telling you of that up front, thank you for your patience. Listen to the story if you can, you know, overcome that hurdle and um, you'll be inspired. Thanks so much. Well, everybody knows it's about my voice now, so that's for sure. And it's a beautiful voice, that one. One of unity, one of togetherness, one of peace, one of love, you know. That's the way forward. Oga, oga. Thank you so much for, for joining me and um, you know, I'm just really appreciative for your time. As I was saying to you when we had a call last week, I'm such a fan of of your work, especially at being at Obscura Film. I think the team that you've put together is, is phenomenal and I was just going through like YouTube and Instagram and going through all of some of the recent stuff you're doing. I was just really impressed at the quality and the intent behind the work that you're doing. So so thanks for you know taking the time to chat with me today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super honored and yeah, I absolutely love um, the initiative and, and the core of what you're doing. So thanks for having me. Super, super. Um, so to kick us off, um, how have you been? I know we spoke, you know, recently and you were, I think you were traveling a little bit, if I'm not mistaken. So how have you been? What have you been up to and what's, you know, what's been happening? I've been really good. Um, it's been quite a whirlwind of a time. We moved um, back to Zimbabwe about a year and a half ago now. And mm-hmm. it's, it's been a really crazy time. It's been, for us, it's been super busy, which we're very grateful for. Um, we've been mm-hmm. working on a really kind of diverse, wonderful range of different projects and traveling mm-hmm. all over Zimbabwe. Um, so, yeah, it's been great. I'm feeling optimistic and just in love with yep. being back home. Super. And who is we? So who we, is we? we as Obscura Films, um, we have mm-hmm. very talented Richard Watson, who's our cinematographer mm-hmm. and editor, um, and Jessica Pulser, who's our producer and production manager. Um, so mm-hmm. the three of us are Obscura Films. We're a tiny, tiny little team. And then we yep. really will outsource um, crew for, for bigger shoots. Yeah. So, and how's that been in terms of like, when since you've been back, how's it been in terms of like, just shooting and picking stories and, you know, going about it? You know, so I'm, so I'm like, film is one of these like interesting professions where it's often um, criticized for being very cost you know it's, it's very cost costly to kind of get a production across the line mm-hmm. so when you and then of course in terms of where global film where the film industries are globally it's sometimes like let's say 
LA or Nigeria or Bollywood or, for example, big markets, if I can call it that, mm-hmm. um, how has it been moving back to Zimbabwe to say, film in Zim, we think this is important? You know, has that been a bit of a trip or maybe walk us through what, what that's been like for you? It's been challenging. It has been challenging. Um, I mean, we came back to Zimbabwe with the intention of we want to tell Zimbabwean stories. We want to tell stories mm. that mean something to us um, and that have the potential to make an impact in, in people's lives, Zimbabwean lives. Um, mm. And I think that's kind of been the motivation that's kept pushing us forward. In terms mm. of, of getting work and just kind of, I guess, educating people in um, how expensive it is to make a film has been quite challenging mm. because we don't have a massive industry in Zimbabwe. Um, mm. It's a tiny, tiny industry. And I think there are so many guys out there who are working super hard but we live in, in this mentality of, um, you know, someone, you put forward your rate and then people try and negotiate you down to what they think is realistic or what they can afford. Um, and so it's it's really tough to make a sustainable living as a filmmaker here. So we are busy trying to build structures and, and trying to change that, trying to support fellow filmmakers and open dialogue and create ways that we can make it realistic for people to be able to, mm-hmm. to make a film in the context of, you know, the Zimbabwe, Zimbabwean financial situation, as well as it mm. being a sustainable form, source of income for filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And why do you, why did, it's, it's this kind of like artist dilemma sometimes where it's like, People like you know sometimes people get pushed away from art because of like the commercial viability sometimes, but it's important. I think art is as important as anything in the world. Um, why do you guys? Why do you guys think it's important to tell Zimbabwean stories? You know, you guys are charting this way, you know, and you've been recognized for it. But despite the challenges, why you know do you think it's important? I think in the world that we are living in now, it's um, representation is critical to the future of humanity. That's how kind of deeply important I feel it is. Um, you know, we've grown up, we've had this conversation in a Zimbabwe where we've watched TV and we've seen characters and role models who a lot of people haven't, you haven't been able to resonate or connect with these role models. It's They're not realistic. Mm. They're not real in the Zimbabwean context. And that creates this kind of false um, expectation that you feel you have to live up to in your life. Um, and so we feel that it's it's really important to tell Zimbabwean stories, to inspire young people, to encourage young people, to, um, to give you something to connect with, something that's real and kind of something that you can work towards. Um, that is authentic to of course. you said something very important which is like now representation is one of the most important things um, in the world right now in many ways um, when you were growing up did you ever feel that you were represented in terms of some of the stories that you would see on on television yeah so in terms of representation I think a lot of the, the television and media that I was exposed to was American um, so no, I didn't. I didn't really resonate with it, and 
my background, which I'll tell you a little bit about um, in more detail. I, I grew up in Zimbabwe and then moved to Ireland. And so I became like a third culture kid. You know, I wasn't, I moved to Ireland, but I wasn't Irish. I came back to Zimbabwe, but I wasn't Zimbabwean. And so I had this kind of fragmented sense of identity and I didn't see that on the screens any anywhere. And I think it's, it's super important because there are so many people who have had to their countries for whatever reason all over the world um and up until recently i don't think we've you know we've heard these stories or seen them um in feature films and spoken about them so so yeah phenomenal so on that point you mentioned that um you of course are a third culture kid so take us back to like some of your childhood you know um where were you born um how did you grow up? Do you have siblings? Where are your parents from? Just so we have a bit of a picture around, you know, who you are as a person. Okay, so I was I was born in Zimbabwe um, in the late 80s, which is a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful time um, mm-hmm. in terms of art and culture. And I grew mm-hmm. up in quite an unconventional home. We um, I lived in Chimani-Mani, deep in the mountains, mm-hmm. on the most mm-hmm. border with my parents, my mom and dad and my brothers, um, and we lived completely self-sufficiently. Um, we, yeah, my parents were both artists. My mum studied dance in London and then theatre in Cape Town. And so she was kind of involved in and out of the theatre scene in, in Zimbabwe. And then my dad was an artist in so mm-hmm. many different mediums. He, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he had passion for, for stone sculpture, and so he worked with some incredible um, sculptors and he also was passionate about African music so he worked with West African instruments like djembe drums and mm. I kind of was yeah they they also they surrounded themselves with this incredible community of artists and mm. in the 80s and 90s in Zimbabwe there was mm. such a vibrant art scene and I mean everywhere you looked while there was art, you know, there were talented mm. people. And I think mm. that, that time in my life definitely had a huge part to play in the trajectory of my career choice. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was early on. When I was around seven or eight, we moved into Chimani Mani <clears throat> and mm-hmm. um, got quite involved in the um, Chimani Mani Arts Festival, which was also incredible. So we had this wonderful exposure to Zimbabwean music. Um, and I think that's where I had my first memories and I really connected with Zimbabwean music through the likes of Tuku. Um, mm. And yeah, at, yeah, so I was around about 11 years old when mm. I moved to Ireland. Um, mm. was. It was quite, you know, I was moving into my teenage years. It was a bit of a turbulent time emotionally anyway. And mm. then we moved continent. We were in a completely different environment. At that mm. time, Ireland wasn't part of the EU yet. So they didn't have that mm. many foreigners living in Ireland. So in, mm. I started high school. Um, and in the whole high school, I was one of two foreigners. So the Irish... Um, I think due to their kind of <laughs> their whole kind of struggle and um, right. 
war and everything that went on there, they were quite guarded against foreigners, and so I experienced mm. quite a bit of bullying, um, mm. physical. And so it was a super, physical, also. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I think it was a it was a super turbulent time. I became very introverted, um, and I became an observer, really. And although as tough as it was, looking back now, I think that it was that that kind of really sparked this innate curiosity within me for how society treats minority groups. And I became very passionate about human rights, about equality. And I kind of um, kind of dived into looking at other areas in the world I was particularly interested in. Mm. East and what was going on there in Africa, mm. Mm. and I, it kind of sparked this real passion within me to want to be involved in something bigger than myself, and in some way making an impact um, on other people's lives. So that was my high school years in Ireland. Mm. I studied. Wait, before I'm going to pause you there. I'm going to pause you there. Um, Two two questions. Why um, Chimani? Not that Chimani one is beautiful, by the way. But why did your parents choose Chimani Mani as a place to? Were they born there, or what was the? I've never heard of you know someone saying I grew up in Chimani Mani. I've never ever heard of that before. So, I'm like, so my dad, my dad moved back to Zimbabwe from South Africa um, when he was in his early twenties, and he mm. immediately got invo- involved in stone sculpture with. Um, Eddie Messiah and Joseph and Tandarico, and Tandarico. Mm. Um, mm. incredible artists. And so he started getting involved with them and, and the whole art scene in Zimbabwe. And I don't know, he, I think he just decided that he didn't, just his mindset at the time, he wanted to kind of almost live in completely separate from society from from what out the, out 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 the mate out the matrix away from the matrix Absolutely. away from the matrix from, he, he wanted yeah. to create this um beautiful home which he envisioned to have a family which he he eventually did and i don't know he just has such a, a beautiful perspective and he wanted to be close to nature chimani mani if you've ever been there is so incredible the eastern highlands i mean mm. it's really really special mm. And I think mm. he was fortunate enough to go out there. He fell in love with it. Um, and he managed to buy like a small plot of land with a group of other people. And mm-hmm. then he, my mom, who had also just moved to Zimbabwe at the time, and she she wanted the same thing and, and they wanted to raise a family. And they homeschooled mm. us as well in, in Mani Mani. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of how they wanted to live their lives. They were hippies, essentially. They they were they were rebels against the <laughs> to put it short, to put it bluntly. <laughs> and they still are. And they still are hippies. They still are. Do you know I've I've always been like well not always, I've yeah, I've I've been quite obsessed with cities for a long, long, long time. But then the older I grow, um the the list disenchanted i feel by them i think they are cool for meeting people and a lot of opportunities there for work and so on and so forth but i honestly like the older i grow i think a lot later in my life i really see myself being closer to nature but honestly just away from like the noise and the 
stuff and you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. the, the nature of being close to what is free, mm-hmm. really. Like the best things, the best things in life truly are free. And I think that's why I asked, I was like, what was going on there that made your parents, you know, made that decision? Because I think there's something that, you know, they touched, they were living, which I think is important for people to know that cities aren't the only, you know, place. And sometimes getting away from the matrix, I think is, is highly underrated, but I think it's, you know, it's an idea that is worth exploring. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's a radical, you know, it's a radical thing to do in the society that we live in to kind of, mm. to make that a sustainable way. But at the same time, mm. it's, it's definitely doable. And if you look at most of Zimbabwe, in fact, that they're living out in nature, you know, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they're making it happen. It's a very simple life, but it's a beautiful mm. life. Mm. And nature has what you have. Like, you know, nature has what you need already. It already has what you need. Exactly. You know? So, yeah. you know, pay isn't the only place you can get food. <laughs> and I love pay. don't get me wrong. But I think the alternative ways to, to choose life. Um, and the second thing I wanted to touch on was like, the thing about, you know, being Zimbabwean and growing up in the area that we grew up in where a lot of people were leaving, similar to yourself, I moved abroad. I think some people are lucky to go unscathed, but we'd be lying to ourselves if we were to say there will be no casualties. Like, we'll be lying to ourselves like if, we, if, we're, if we're honest in the fact that this way in which we've migrated and what have you is, 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 is okay, but it's not normal. At the, you know, and in that migration, people get burnt and get bullied, both verbally and physically. You know, there's, there will be casualties, and I've seen it in my own family and friendships. Um, I didn't think I had it, but then I realized with me, it was always my trauma was maybe bleeding into my work all the time. Not I wasn't physically crying, but it was always in my the stuff I was working on. I was like, oh gosh, it was always bleeding into the stuff that I was working on. So I fully like resonated that notion of like I wasn't bullied, but my maybe my grief was expressed in other ways, you know. Um, but as you say, like sometimes being sometimes being abroad, you go through some hard stuff, but you gain some perspective and some tools that you can make, you know, that help you move in the world. So you said Ireland for you was mm-hmm. quite useful in the end, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, just to touch on what you're saying, it's an emotional thing to to leave a home that where you had grown up and what you're familiar with and mm-hmm. move to mm-hmm. a completely different environment. It's painful and there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of, of shedding of who you thought you were and how you fitted mm-hmm. into society um, and mm. you've got to start from scratch and kind of figure out your identity all over again which is mm. painful and but at the same time massive massive growth happens within that and mm. I think it softens you it can either harden or soften you as a person for me I mm. think it softened me quite a lot I think I felt a lot of empathy for minority groups mm. in particular mm. and and it just kind of really made me become, like I said, an observer and just observe how how minority groups are treated and just all of the issues all over the world. And it kind of really made me interested in that. So, yeah, and it also mm. teaches you a lot about people, different cultures. Um, you just have the capacity to, to empathize um, with all sorts of different people from all walks of life. So for that, I'm very grateful.
Super, super, super. So you've gone to Ireland, the whole family is there now, we're trying to figure it out. Um, funny enough, I know a few Zimbabweans in Ireland, which is very weird, but anyway, so you're in Ireland now, and then you say, and so that was for junior school, was that the same for high school as well? Were you there throughout the whole process? So I was actually homeschooled for junior school in Zimbabwe and then high school yes. in Ireland. High school in Ireland. And then, so, right, yeah. Um, so yeah, during high school. Wait, so your first time at school? Yeah. School, school. Well, <laughs> that's so traumatic. <laughs> that's so traumatic. Oh my goodness, that's so traumatic. Oh. Yeah, Ooh. so teenagers in Ireland. So my parents also, for them, they had to start from scratch, you know, new country. Yeah. They were working, they were doing best they could to support us. And I realized very quickly that if I wanted anything, I had to work for it myself. And luckily in Ireland, you have opportunities to go and get a job. Um, like if you want to make some money, you can go and waitress, you can go and work in a hotel and you get paid quite well. So... I learned that mm -hmm. from pretty early on. I was very independent and I was like, I think I got my first job at 14 washing dishes. And I was like, I want to make my own way. I want to save my money and I want to go and see the world and experience different cultures. And so throughout mm. working, um, I went and I studied art after, after high school. And I absolutely mm. loved art. I wanted to explore something creative. But I think at the same time, I felt like this isn't fulfilling enough for me yet. I want to go and find my place in the world and figure out who it is I am, who, yeah, who it is I am. And, um, and I wanted to somehow make an impact that was bigger than myself. And so I worked, um, saved, saved my money. And in that, I kind of realized I was quite good at working in the hospitality and the service industry. Mm -hmm. I, I loved people. I loved people watching. And mm. I think that's kind of where I just, I really fell in love with humanity and like the little nuances and, you know, the same guy that comes in for his coffee every day, you learn his personality. And that was so beautiful to me. Um, and looking back as well, you know, it did so much good for my, in my career as a filmmaker because I learned how to think very quickly under high pressure situations. I learned how to work long hours. I learned how to read people, um, which all falls into filmmaking. You, you need that. <laughs> so, so anyway, off on a tangent, I saved money. Wait, I'm going to pause you there. That's so <laughs> poignant. That's so poignant because I was thinking about this exact idea today where it's like, you're looking for, you know, and looking for self, I guess, like, I think everyone, at least my, my main thing is like, it's important to try and find yourself if you haven't found it yet, at least and try, or if not, at least try. And then sometimes some of the jobs that you, or, you know, whatever career or, you know, thing you want to do, but sometimes all of these jobs that you do give you information about yourself, how you engage with the world, what it is that you like about working what respond what what the world resonates what the world lacks from you and all of these various things and i have these uh, i wrote actually wrote down every single job i've ever had like from when i was 16 17 i wrote down every single i think there were 17 <laughs> 17 
And I wrote them down and I was like, what was the highlights of all of these? But I had information. I said, ooh. And it was random. It was stuff like waiting tables I found incredibly fun. Not because of... It was, it's, it's intense. It's intense. But it was the people... Like, it's what I'm doing now, talking to you. That was like the most fun... It was so fun, like talking to people. Or like working retail at a tourist shop. Random. But it's fascinating speaking to a person from across the world that you've never... Building rapport is something. But what I'm trying to say is that all of these various jobs that you work, or if I was working in sales at like a real estate company, it's talking to people. All of these things, they give you information and they can be useful tools to help you understand yourself and engaging with the, they aren't the final thing, but they can help act as markers for you to remember. You know? I don't know if that's, do you find that that was similar for you and like hospitality and stuff like that? Absolutely. Never underestimate anything you do in life you're going to learn something from, you know? You can either make a job, you know, like a massive weight on your shoulders and, oh, I hate um, waiting tables, or you can look at it as an opportunity to learn. And I think that's how I looked at it. I saw, I worked um, with a lot of Polish people and Eastern Europeans, people from all over the world. And I loved hearing their stories. One of my most memorable times in Ireland was I worked in this um, boutique hotel. And we used mm-hmm. to take babes, clean toilets, you know, really unglamorous jobs. But I mm-hmm. absolutely loved it because I used to chat to these Polish people and Ukrainians and hear their interesting stories. And when you ask questions and when you, you talk to someone, no matter where they're from in the world, you start seeing threads of some kind of something in common, you know, some kind of shared humanity. And that, that was beautiful. Mm. So, um, mm. so I loved that time in my life. Yeah, I can. I remember I used to work at wait tables. I can speak about, like, I would speak to Spanish people. I think Spain was going through like a huge recession at this time, and sometimes similar working table. I'll be waiting, and they'll be like, in the, you know, some of them were doing the dishwashing, and then and there was, some, there was so much. You could see some people had so much anger. They'll be like, you know, what's where are you from? We start talking. It's like you know, I'm actually an architect, or I'm an engineer but I've come to Scotland to learn English. And I was like, man, I'm, of course, I'm, I'm Zimbabwe. Of course, I was in university, but I was like, I get the frustration. Yeah. Because I've seen different. I remember being like, damn, we're actually, a lot more, there's a lot more shared humanity than we actually care to. Yeah. If we look, we're a lot more similar than we, you know, than we think we are, you know? Absolutely. Um, with you, you said that, of course, you learned that, but then also it gave you opportunity to empower yourself financially to go out into the world and help find yourself so where did you go and what did you find when you you know when you went there so i went to a whole bunch of different places i actually went to the states for a little bit um i went to india i went to the netherlands sweden i was in sweden working for a bit um but all the while, all of these places, as beautiful and wonderful as they were, my heart was calling for Africa and calling for me to, to go back home, as it were, in my, in my mind at the time. And so I, had, I found this wonderful opportunity to go and work in Cape Town um, in social work. And it was along the lines with I wanted to get into humanitarian aid and I wanted to do something meaningful. And so I decided to go to Cape Town. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I feel like a bit of a deer in the headlights. I was in my early 20s at that time. And I arrived into Cape Town, beautiful, vibrant city. And I went and I worked in this in the township. And it was mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. really eye-opening for me. I had this idea of like, I want to go and make an impact on the world, you know. And I walked mm. and I got shown reality. You know, huge. In yeah. Way, and yeah. I very quickly realized you know, who am I to come and teach these little kids? I'm, I've grown up in a completely different culture. You know, I'm still mm. find myself. Who am I to mm. in here and, and try and, like, teach these kids mm. that needs to come from their community and from their, their mm. people, you know? And so that was, it was quite disheartening and heartbreaking for me because I felt like this is what I wanted to do. So I came... Mm. I then came back to Zimbabwe and I said, let me try and figure out something in Zimbabwe and let me see, you know, let me just explore some options. So I started up my own little organization, um, which I I did for about a year or so. And I was bringing in various different, um, various different people from all over the world to come and mm-hmm figure out mm-hmm. strategies and ways to train people on the ground who could then train people in communities. It was, mm. it was a lot. I think I was too young at the time to get involved in it. It was a lot of responsibility. It was mm. really tough. And I actually ended up then just saying, look, I'm going to take a pause on this. I'm going to go. Mm. I was running out of money, didn't have any financial support. I'm going to go back to Sweden. I'm going to mm-hmm. work in the, do the season in Sweden, save a bit of money and figure out what I want to do. Life mm. had other plans. Um, I fell pregnant with my now seven-year-old son at that time. Mm-hmm. I made a wonderful mm-hmm. Zimbabwean guy. And then mm-hmm. I was faced with this decision, right, what do I, where do I want to raise my child? I, I was so fortunate to have the opportunity to go to Europe. Um, but there was something in me that just, you know, that um, closeness, closeness to nature that we speak of and the softness of mm-hmm. Barbarian people, and I just felt like mm. I want to raise my child here. So I stayed mm. in Zimbabwe for, um, we were here for a couple of years, and then, yeah, that's when the whole whole filmmaking journey came about. Oof, a, a lot. <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> Woo, it's a trip. Um, I'm trying to think where to start. I think there's, there's, even before the film, there's been a lot of like intent, a lot of intent around like, I want to help, I want to help, I want to be of service. And I'm realizing, oh, how can I be of service? Okay, this is not the right way. This might be the way. Oh, but it's expensive. So it's like, but the intent has always been the same across all the board. It's helping people, empowering people, um, and finding whatever is the best way to do that. Is that, is that a correct assumption? Yes, absolutely. I've had, um, I think I can go back as far as from when I was maybe 10 years old or so, where I've had that Mm. one common thread that if ever I veer off the path and I'm kind of doing something that's not really I'm meant to be doing, I have this very, very strong um, pull towards, towards, yeah, I don't know, making an impact. And, um, geez, um, well, firstly, like, amazing that, you know, you, you managed to, of course, take, you, 
here's the thing. I always I always say the word intent specifically because you know, with all of us, sometimes even with this podcast as an example, there might be a time not to put it out there. I might say the wrong thing or go about something in the wrong way, and that's part of being human, right? But if think if the but you always look at the intent to be like, okay, well, what was um, Kalai trying to do? Or what was Dumi trying to say? You know, I think that's, so intent is the most important thing because it always brings you back to the, it keeps you guided throughout, you know? So whether you are, you know, in Cape Town, whether that's in Zim, I don't think, you know, it shouldn't be hard. To, I think never be hard on yourself for it because you are, you know, your intent was pure and, you know, and that has guided you throughout. So, so the question I was having throughout this whole process, which is like, had you ever picked up a camera at this stage? Or, or... Yeah. So I, uh-huh. I love photography, um, always have mm. loved photography. My mum, when we were in Ireland, my mum um, studied photography. And mm. I, yeah, I always had a camera in some shape or form. Back in those days, I had those disposable cameras. Those disposable one from Boots. Cameras. The one you get from Boots or like the... Exactly. From like yeah. Kodak. And Kodak I constantly, one. I think it was oh. what I was in love with was documenting moments in time. I really, really loved that. And if you went to my house as a 20-something-year-old, my whole walls were filled with photographs. Yes, with pictures. This was before Instagram and Facebook. You know, I just, I really loved documenting and particularly people. People was my passion. So throughout my my 20s, I in some way or form had a camera. I definitely hadn't honed in on the skill yet or even thought of it in that sense. But it was there. It was there in a big way. Um, And my brother, my younger brother, um, he actually picked up a camera when he was nine years old. And he started making films. And I was always so inspired by him. And I encouraged him. Um, quite a lot. He's now a film director based in London and he's incredibly mm. talented. But throughout mm. his journey, I remember looking at him and just being in awe of how brave he was because he just decided at nine, nine years old, he was like, this is what I'm doing. And he just went. At nine, and as a kid, he was like, nope. This nine, is, we were like, wow. so cute. Oh, sweet. Nathan has like, well, wow. You know, that's he was like, no, I'm we like, serious. Oh. This is serious. At around <laughs> 16, we were like, no, even earlier, maybe 14, we were like, whoa, he's actually really, really talented. And then we started mm. encouraging him. Um, by 16, he was already making money, um, making like, you know, music videos and whatever, whatever he could at the time. But he was already mm. making money as a filmmaker. So he inspired me a lot. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the camera was there it was always kind of in the in the periphery i just hadn't put it all the pieces of the puzzle together i don't think mm. so what was the moment where you said because you've been of course traveling the world learning about yourself um, yeah firstly what did you learn about yourself in your travels what did you learn what did i learn about myself um do you know what i think <laughs> I think I'm still learning. <laughs> I'm still learning. <laughs> we all are. I feel we all are, honestly. Yeah. If I could pick one particular thing about myself that I learned was that following my heart was always the way to go. You know, I'd always have this kind of struggle between mind and heart. And whenever I overthought or whenever I was like I should be doing this you know I'm turning this age and this is what they say I should be doing 
it just didn't feel right. And I, it was like this guttural initial thing. And I think I've been driven so much in my life by my heart and my gut. And I've just gone with what feels right. And I've kind of been honing in on this skill. And it's also as a, as a director in particular, but as a filmmaker, your gut plays so much um, a part in the whole process of making a film. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's one thing that I would say I learned about that was so powerful. That's, there's so much noise. There's so much noise. You know what I mean? In the world where it's like, because there, there's two things. You get taught that it's like, from like in terms of from a commerce background, it's always based on logic, 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 logic. Everything is logic. What are you thinking? And logic is important, very important. Yeah. But I think sometimes we've heard too much on logic and then we've never left room for intuition. Mm-hmm. And intuition is just as powerful and sometimes you can't really explain logic through intuition your gut just says or my heart just says this is the thing that i should be doing right now you know what i mean and it seems like well that makes no sense Calais. that's do you have pressure do you have pressure from the world to be like when are you going to be a a grown-up and actually you know (laughs) you know what i mean because the world would want to put fear on you and say yeah get a real job or whatever do you have that kind of um pressure at all absolutely on yourself maybe yeah on yourself on yourself yeah on myself um more so than anyone i have um great pressure to perform and you know do the right thing as a mother um as Ooh, all sorts of big things. big dynamic big dynamic because <laughs> yeah. one it's hard enough when it's by yourself when you've got a child and that's another mm-hmm. level of so what gave you the confidence to you know to back your gut or your heart into filmmaking or just not maybe not even before the filmmaking just to move with that who gave you that awareness that that's where you should be listening to that was that yourself or did someone kind of remind you my parents um from a very young age have always said to me listen to your heart you know with any struggle i've had in life and i'm very fortunate to have a wonderful relationship with both of them They've always mm-hmm. sat me down and they've said, what does your heart say? You know, and so I think that really has it stuck with me. And I kind of, um, as any teenager does, you know, stopped listening to them for a little bit. I was like, no, nah, not listening. <laughs> These guys are struggling artists. I'm, yeah, 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 yeah. They don't know, they don't know what to <laughs> But I think the older I got and the more I learned about myself, I learned that that's, that's a very, very powerful tool is to listen to your heart and listen to your gut um, and follow what feels right, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, what's that? I, I don't know why my, my mind went to Harry Potter. There's that scene, I don't know if in Harry Potter, where like, <laughs> where he takes like liquid luck. Um, he takes like liquid luck and then human Hermione are trying to find, solve this problem. And I think it's Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. And then he goes, Harry, where are we going? And Hermione's like, Harry, where are you going? He's like, I think we should go to Hagrid's right now. And then he's like, Harry, we only have a few hours to solve this. Hagrid is a community in the other part of Hogwarts. is like, it just feels right. <laughs> so I think the whole point of what, what J.K. Rowling was trying to talk about was like, you know, he, he drinks this potion. Of course, the thing is, it's just a potion, but the thing is, to try to communicate, it's just about what feels right. Yeah. And what, doing what feels right drives you towards the most favorable outcomes. That you're looking for. So I don't know. My mind went there, but 
to bring it back, um, how did um, <laughs> we get? At what point did going full forces on film, you know, become like the right feeling to say, okay, I'm going to take this very seriously now and build a career out of it. Okay, so I'm now in Zimbabwe, um, single mother at this point. My um, mm. the father and I had separated. And so I needed to be serious. I needed to make a living for me and my son and send him to school. So I got a pretty normal, you know, normal job. I was working mm-hmm. in um, for a safari camp and I started out working in reservations, steady income. It was a lovely job. Um, and slowly I kind of worked my way into the marketing team. And in the marketing team, I was just doing social media, but I, I started writing. And I suddenly remembered my passion for writing. I think I wrote my first poem when I was like eight years old or something like that. And I've always loved writing. And I suddenly, through my work, I was able to write. And then they started asking me to write articles. And and I just realized I loved the research process so much. I was learning so much. And I wanted, I just had this sudden hunger. I wanted to do it more and more. And then at the same time, they sent me out to the safari camp and they were like, will you take some photographs? And I had a camera, took a couple of photographs, and then I also fell in love with that. And I was like, mm. wow, what is this this like burning thing that mm. laid dormant in me for so long? I need mm. to fulfill this. So mm. I, I was doing that for a while. Um, at the same time, I met my partner, Richard Watson, who's the mm-hmm. with Obscure Film, so partner in life and, and work. Mm-hmm. He he was at a crossroads in his life. Um, he had just come back from university in the States studying business, and he was a bit lost and really know what he wanted to do. Um, we were friends at the time, and he saw one of my brother's films, um, and he was just like, whoa, I want to do that. That is what I want to do. So he went to Cape Town to study film. So he's now in Cape Town studying film. Did you guys know each other this stage? Do you guys know each other at this stage? Yeah. You guys know each other? Yeah. So Richard and yeah. I, yeah, we, we had met. We worked together. Cool. And I, right. I but he had, never, he had never shot anything before like that. No. No, he hadn't. He had made Crazy. He to Cape Town um, with a couple of friends and he had filmed with a GoPro or something this video of their experience and he showed me the video and I was like, wow, Richard, that's really, really cool. That's fun. You mm. should why don't you try, like, think of doing something like that? I could see he definitely had an eye and he was like, nah, like, film, you know, who does that? He grew up in Zimbabwe. It's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, look, this is my brother. This is what he does for a living. Mm. Showed him one of my brother's films and it was like, for Richard, you could literally see the sparks, the light bulb. He was like, this is what I want to do. So he he applied for um, after in Cape Town and he went straight for it and he went and studied. So Rich was busy, I think he was in his first year studying film and he he chose cinematography. He loved the camera um, and the technical aspect of things. He's very technical. And he was like, I need to write stories and direct (laughs) me. And then we were just like through conversation and being inspired by my brother, I was like, well, why don't we just do something for fun? And we decided mm. we were friends with a lot of musicians. Um, very, very talented, beautiful Amy Warren, like Amy and the Calamities. I don't know if you know her, but 
we decided to get. Is that the one you shot in Bulawayo? Yes, exactly, exactly. So we were like, ah, that's your first project together. That was our second one. The first one we shot in Nyanga. It's called No Bison. That one, the one in Bulawayo was the second video that we made. Um, but we were like, yeah, wow. why don't we just do this? Let's try for fun. And so it was a fun thing. A whole bunch of friends, we got together, we went to Nyanga, wrote like a narrative. Richard pretty much guided because he was the one at university. He was like, this is what we have to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I just absolutely fell in love with it from the second we started doing it. I just, I was like, right, there's no turning back now. This is it. This is what I have to do. Um, <laughs> that's so cool. Oh, that's so cool. And I, I, by the way, I've watched that video. It's incredible. And I'm shocked to say that that's, I'm, I'm actually genuinely blown away. I think that that's what was the second project you worked on. It was mad. Like it was on the train in Rio, yeah. and then you went to the old colonial, like, um, I think it was like a train station or whatever. Yeah. It just looked like the quality is so good. Yeah. It's just breathtaking. So, okay. So, no, amazing. So you've clearly like, you guys hit something and you had, there's all of this like good energy around like, wow, okay, this is happening. How do we open? Was there, was that even like, it was a project at this stage. How did you, how did you guys shift them to say, okay, this is cool, but how do we do this like intentionally? You know what I mean? Like yeah. to operationalize it. How did, what was the thinking like there and how did that come about? So it was, it was quite a, a process um, building that courage to be able to say, okay, I'm going to step into this full time. You know, you, there's a lot of imposter syndrome with any artist will be able to relate to this. Um, and particularly, you know, Rich was studying. He he had his three years of studying. He knew he was going to be focused on that. And he knew when he came out of uni that he mm. wanted to be in film. I think his, mm-hmm. his kind of journey was a lot more um, straightforward and he's a very focused kind of person. For me, mm-hmm. I was still living in Zimbabwe at the time. I still continued on working with the job that I was doing, but it, it definitely wasn't fulfilling me. Um, and that hunger kind of was just growing bigger and bigger. And I constantly had a battle with this imposter syndrome. Like, I, who am I? I'm not going to be able to do this. At the same time, there aren't many female filmmakers in the world to look up to and be like, oh, I can be like her. You know, mm. intimidating. Mm. You think of a director, you think of Spielberg, you know, you think of all the guys and they whatever like, George Lucas, yeah. all of these guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the baseball caps and the old blue jeans. Yeah. <laughs> the old blue jeans. And I was like, I can't do that. Yeah. You know, no way. And uh. so I just continued on with my job, but the hunger eventually grew bigger than the fear, if you know what I mean. So it came to a point. Mm. But then what actually gave me the courage was this realization of the power of film to tell a story that can emotionally connect with an audience, that can motivate change within their lives. You know, I know I've watched films where it's changed my my view on the world or it's somehow made me feel like I want to get up off of the seat and I want to go and join that organization or I want to make mm. the in the world, you know. So I realized it was like that aha moment of mm. all of this kind of trajectory of my life of wanting to make an impact. What a perfect way that you can do that through film, you know. And you can tell stories, real stories. Mm. And you can use music and you can use all of the different mediums 
image um, and you can evoke emotion within your audience to motivate um, positive social change. So I think it was the fact that it was outside of me. It was bigger than me. Mm. You know, just mm. about me, it's scary. And I still... Mm. Scared. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you still have fear. You still have fear now. We're like, okay. Yeah, every set I go on to, I'm, I'm nervous. You know, I'm, I'm scared. But every single time I'm like, okay, this is bigger than me. It's going to potentially impact someone else. So I think that was the thing that gave me the courage to say, okay, I want to do this. Um, mm. Then, um, so Richard was coming to the end of his university by chance, mm-hmm. I had a an accident and I broke my back, ended up in hospital. Um, and so I actually, I couldn't work anymore in the job that I was doing. I kind of, I, I was doing a little bit of um, work from home for them, but it wasn't enough to create an income. So this was kind of a massive pinnacle moment in my life where I now had a choice to, it was going to take six months for me to heal. They, the work that I was people I was working for unfortunately couldn't keep me on for that long um and I was like right okay what do I do now and so I just decided to to jump into film rich came back from from no sorry he didn't come back from university I moved to Cape Town with Benjamin I took a leap of faith and we were just like we're gonna we're gonna try and make this work um and so yeah so that's how we started Obscura Films (laughs) <laughs> this is why I do this. I love this. this is so good. Uh, oh man! So there are too many, so many thoughts going through my head. Um, firstly, congratulations for you know having the courage to to take the leap of faith. Um, I'm sure you're very proud of yourself, you know, for actually having the confidence to actually do that. Um, this, the second thought I have in my head is uh, there's this Kanye West song called "Through the Wire," where he had to go through had a car accident. He breaks his jaw, and then he's now breaking. He breaks his jaw, <laughs> and then, and then he talks about he talks about this. Um, he said, "When I had my accident, you realize that nothing in life is promised except death." Mm-hmm. And uh, not to be very morbid, but that's true, right? Like we, you know, we're here for a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we think we will live forever, but the truth is. COVID-19 reminds us of anything. It's the fact that time is fleeting and life is very fickle. Mm. Um, it's short, but it can be long too, but in many ways it can be very fickle. So whilst you're here, if you have the courage to do so, go for what you want, you know? Um, but it's tough. Um, I, I hope that people listening to this won't have to get into a car accident where they break their back and, and have to get <laughs> for that to be the thing. Um, but I'm how can I put it? I, or, or I'm really sad about the accident. That's tough. But what, what came out of that was something very beautiful. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, um, what came out of that was very beautiful. Did you, did you have, was that moment when you got, had the accident, like, you know, Calais, like, look, this is us. You know, we may as well do this. What was, what were you, what was your mental exercise like? when you're going through that process, you know, of trying to figure out how to heal and move forward? It was a whole process. That um, breaking my back was was a huge thing in my life. I actually, when I was in the hospital, I was in Paranyatwa Hospital, 
Um, and I was in so much pain. I was about to lose the use of my right leg. Um, and I remember lying there in the hospital. They didn't. They hadn't had any painkillers in the hospital for for quite a while. The nurses were incredible. The care was incredible. Um, but they gave me this painkiller, and I was actually hallucinating. And I thought that I was about to die. And when you think, wow. When you think, when you you know, I didn't come close to dying by any means. But when you think that you're about to, you think about to die. Your perception changes massively. And so coming out of that hospital, I definitely, I came out of there with, with a shifted perception on life and exactly resonate with what you've just said. Like life is so short and you've got to, you've got to do what is right and what fulfills your soul, you know. And so I think that was the fundamental change of um, moving forward. It was a whole six month period before I even started getting back into it and a whole lot of, um, unpacking and figuring out life again around the same time I also lost my grandfather who I was living with which was another kind of mm. thing but I think all of these um struggles that we experience in life and um the pain there's so much learning that comes out of that and so much growth and I've always seen you know struggle and um, failure pain as an opportunity to Because it was almost like landing on like a on a concrete or like cement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's you're landing on a very, very hard surface, and 
yeah, just going back to instinct and gut again. So funny. I've, I have cliff jumped um, many times before in my life in Ireland and Sweden and all over. And that particular day, I just hesitated and I was like, something doesn't feel right. And okay. it was like, come on, jump. It was like in the movies, you know, and then I jumped. And for some reason, I just curled into a ball and you're supposed to pin drop. Yes. And that was that. And I should have listened to myself and not jumped. <laughs> But anyway, in hindsight, it all turned out. Um, it turned out really, like exactly how it was supposed to turn out because I had huge learning from that. Yeah, <laughs> I've actually done the jump before. There's a video of me jump. <laughs> I pin dropped, but yeah, now, I've, now I'll be mindful of it next time. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've we've pieced ourselves together. We've done the rehab. We've done the work to turn up together, and we've gone to Cape Town. We've said, "Cool, we're going to do this thing." We're overcoming imposter syndrome and fear, but the hunger is stronger than the fear at this point. Um, would, also, did you guys, yeah, but you're in Cape Town now, right? Um, did you feel intimidated because South Africa is like the big market, if I can call it? Look, I think Zimbabwean times they can do well anywhere, but sometimes there's this imposter syndrome that's almost added mm-hmm. when Zimbabweans go to like Los Angeles or Cape Town because it's a big market and now it's like, oh, here I'm. I've never, I've never experienced. Now I'm in Cape Town trying to, you know, yeah. make films. Did you guys? What was that period like for you guys? You know, lifting this thing from the ground up. Yeah, that transition was um, was very intimidating. A lot of imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, I mm. was fortunate enough to meet the most wonderful assistant director. Her name is Christy Morley. Who she was studying with Richard at the time, and she was mm. such a guiding light through that process. Um, we became very close and she actually taught me so much. Um, but yeah, I, I found it very intimidating. Cape Town, there are a lot of incredibly talented people um, and there's there's a lot of um, competition, you know, and particularly as a female director, as it is, it's quite, it's quite a thing. You know, people aren't used to a female still, even though we, we do speak about it and, um, it's definitely changing, but people just aren't used to a female being in a position of power. So you walk into a room. I remember my first um, commercial with Total And in the room, I was the only female in the room. And you can just see when you speak, there's this kind of like, it's like oh, are you sure? Like, <laughs> this, this is, you know, <laughs> right. So that, that was really, really challenging to, um, to find my voice, to have the courage to guide, you know, and, and to be strong in what in the messages that I was wanting to put out. Um, it was it was mm. really tough, but we had we were so fortunate to have a couple of Zimbabwean clients, um, and during that time we made a beautiful um, music video for the Jambo Mike's Rainmaker, which has just won a NAMA recently. And um, so that was such a beautiful experience. We decided to bring the JMO monks. We got funding for them and then decided to bring them to um, the Karoo Desert in South Africa. It was some of, mm. uh, one of the guys caught, so it was his first time being out of Zimbabwe and seeing the ocean. So mm. it was really special mm. um, and meaningful mm. experience. And so we ha- we did constantly have our foot in the door in Zimbabwe with our clients. We were kind of flying back and forth still. So we had mm. this support from Zimbabwe that kind of helped us um, helped us to continue on in, in 
in Cape Town. And at the same time, Richard had made his own, through university, his own wonderful network of people. Um, and he was starting to make a name for himself as a cinematographer. Um, mm -hmm. so, so we did have that support as well. So it was really mm. good. We learned a lot. You know, I, I do actually thrive being in situations that I'm not comfortable in because... Again, I think it, it forces you to really to learn and grow. It pushes you. Yeah, it pushes you forward. So I am grateful as as scary as it was at the time. Mm, that's awesome. And then how about the move back to, to Zim? Like, what did that look like? We've been kept on for a while. Um, I've seen some of the video, like, there's a the band I really like. Even, like, the theme song for this podcast, like, is... Um, Orga Orga by um, Flying Bantu. I know you guys did a video for them. Yeah. Uh, Sunshine City. So, you know, what was it like moving back to Zim and kind of some projects like that? What was that like, do you know? So just to backtrack, just before we moved back to Zimbabwe, um, mm. the Flying Bantu had actually come on tour in South Africa and we yes. filmed, we kind of went around with them and filmed their, um, their tour video, which was so wonderful because mm. they basically were family. A few years prior awesome. to the shot Sunshine City. Um, and I just oh. really love the Flying Bunchy. I They're probably my favorite band in Zimbabwe. They, they're really so good. Their lyrics are incredible. And so it was a really special time. And while they were mm. in Cape Town, it was announced that um, their song, Sunshine City, that we did a video for, had won the number. The video had won the number. So we were all together for that, but we were in yes. so it was, it was a really, epic, really epic time. And then um, shortly after that, COVID, yeah. COVID came into play. So obviously film industry in, in South Africa shut down completely. We had no work whatsoever. Um, and it really, you know, brought to our attention that we didn't really have community. You know, we had a couple of, of friends in Cape Town, but we didn't really have a close community. Um, and so, yeah, the, the pandemic was tough. We we did our best to kind of keep going with what we, we could, but we, we started thinking seriously about where are we going to go from here? We had no idea. And what are we going to do? Are we even going to be able to continue filmmaking? Mm. Um, and at that time, I think it was around the June um COVID had started in February or March or something like that. And then it was around June that we got a call and we got offered a contract to come back to Zimbabwe um, and we'd be shooting for a year, which was very exciting. Mm. Um, and it came at the perfect time. So, you know, without... His wait, who, wait, how did this come about? Who was... I don't know if you had... Are you, are you able to disclose it or not really? Um, we unfortunately, it didn't actually... Not yet. Through. It fell cool. through. So we were not able to to talk about it. Mm -hmm. and cool, cool, it was, cool, cool, cool. In your notes, you'd asked about a low point in, in your career. So mm. it was definitely mm. a low point. So basically... Yeah. 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 The reason I want to say it is because sometimes, like, we talk about following your gut earlier, right? And then some... But it's not... It's, not, it's always not going to be sunshine and roses and, you know what I mean, and fairy dust. Sometimes, like, beautiful things come out of the blue that you attract because you're moving in purpose and intention yeah. but then at the same time they fall through that's why i asked about like so when it fell through how did you guys recover from that it must have been tough it's like you're moving with your gut but then 
the world isn't giving you the answers that you need yeah. to be hearing in this tough moment. So what was that like and how did you build up from there? Yeah, it was it was really scary. You you question yourself. You you suddenly think, Oh my gosh, have I done the right thing? Have I made the right decisions? You know? Mm. So you've got mm. a child to feed. It's it was a very scary time. So we basically mm. got this contract, we didn't hesitate. We were like, Okay, let's move back to Zimbabwe. We put a lot of work into it. Um I think we were working on that project for roughly eight months. Um, we had moved to Zimbabwe in, you know, good faith that everything was going ahead. And then unfortunately it fell through um, and we were suddenly like, you know, absolutely broke. Coming out of the pandemic, had no savings. Neither of us have family in Zimbabwe either. So we were like, wow, this is, what are we going to do now? We had no idea. Um, yeah, and at this point, uh, Jessica, Jessica Pulser, our producer production mm-hmm. manager, had mm-hmm. joined us. She had actually joined us in June. So for mm-hmm. her, um, it was really, really scary because now we have another like... another person to be responsible for um, in this with us, you know. But we were, we yeah. were very fortunate for our close friends took us in, housed us um, for as mm. long as it took for us to figure things out. And then slowly things just started turning around almost as soon as that door shut and and the project fell through. Another door opened um, and it was definitely more aligned with who we are as filmmakers and the types of of stories we want to be putting out there and messages we want to be putting out there. And it's just, we feel like we've been supported ever since we've had, um, kind of since then, we've had back-to-back jobs. Mm. Yeah, so we've been really, really lucky. We, mm. Yeah, somehow, somehow we've just like, <laughs> been pushed. And you've, worked, yeah. and you've worked on epic stuff. Like I saw like the Hope Masika video, you know, and the XQ. There's, there's so much great work has kind of you've attracted. Um, you know, like how in storytelling there's like the, you know, the hero's journey, like arc, there's the call to, there's the call to adventure. And you guys got the call to adventure. Yeah. And then, of course, there's that tension in between there. You're trying to, like, you think things are working out and they don't work out, and then people come in and help you. Then you have a guy that comes and helps you out through your process. Yeah. Um, so who have you guys, who have been your biggest guides, you know, throughout this yeah. Zim foray? I would say um, Jace Pulser has been an incredible yeah. force that has kept mm. growing. She has mm. such a, a wonderful capacity to look at everything very logically and pragmatically. I'm quite an emotional person, um, so Mm -hmm. I tend to get caught up in the emotions. But Jess, since, you know, we knew each other from before, we we were friends from before, and she took a leap of faith. We met in Cape Town at the beginning of the pandemic. She was had been working overseas in Europe and she was like, I don't know what to do. And she had all of the right skill sets for film. So she took a leap of faith and joined us and yeah. Been absolutely incredible. She really is um, very, just kind of confident and steadfast, and nothing seems to shake her. You know, obviously we all have our, our bad days, um, mm. but she's really she's been one of the most incredible driving forces. And the team that we have as Obscura Films, I think we've all been each other's guides. You know, um, Richard mm. well is very 
mm. one of the most calm people that I know. Um, it, mm. it takes a lot to kind of shake him. Um, shake him, right. So the, the combination of the three of us, we sit, we talk a lot. We really talk a lot. Um, and we were fortunate enough to do during um, during this whole process, we did like a couple of um, strength finder personality tests and figuring mm. out psychologically how we could work well as a team. Like I did the same things, yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible, and it's helped us so much. Um, yeah. I, I think those two have been the biggest support, and then obviously family. Um, you know, even though they're they're overseas, we talk a lot on Skype and on the phone, and they're always really, really encouraging. And then mm. you know, just the friends, the friends here have been, you know, absolute like family, and that's what I love about Zimbabweans. They just are so open-hearted, so warm. You know, what's mine is yours, and you just you feel, mm. you feel okay. Yeah. So, mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, and then speaking to the future, um, I sometimes think like words are powerful because you speak them out and sometimes you like, you attract what you put out. Um, what do you guys need in terms of whether it's assistance or what do you guys want to work on or attract for your future? You know what I mean? With the work that you're working towards at the minute. Okay. So yeah, that's, I, I am such a believer definitely in putting your vision down on paper, vocalizing it. Um, vocalizing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Manifestation mm -hmm. is super, super powerful, and we see mm -hmm. that all the time. So I've seen it all the time. Yep. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, it really, really mm -hmm. is, you know, one of life's mysteries, and I, I love it. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. what, what mm -hmm. we're kind of working towards is we've, we've been building our careers and building our portfolio visually um, in music video and commercial work, and so now we, we're taking a kind of a movement more towards documentary and um, towards impactful storytelling, which has always been the, the trajectory, but we've just been building our skill sets and kind of honing in on us, our ability to be able to tell stories. But we're definitely mm -hmm. we're moving in that path um, towards mm -hmm. documentary storytelling um, mm -hmm. and also narrative. We're moving into narrative. So how... Mm -hmm. What was the question? How could you? How can you help us? Yeah. What? What? What do you guys want help? Do you want distribution? Do you want audience? Do you want Netflix to come and buy what you guys are making? Yeah. You know. And it's a and it's a dream, right? Like in a dream, everything is perfect and works well. So it's okay to say what you want to say without fear. <laughs> it's a dream, and it's important. You know what I mean? So say what you want to say absolutely you know and thank you um thank you for the opportunity for also making me think mm. i think what, mm -hmm. what would help hugely is definitely distribution um and and also for channels to come and buy zimbabwean african stories um i think mm. there, there are so many um american stories and european stories out there but i think it would be so beautiful if we could Zimbabwean features and um, and African stories and that's what we're passionate about and yeah so I mm. think distribution producers mm -hmm. we need we need help on that end in, in getting mm -hmm. these stories out in a, um, on a global audience on a global scale um, gotcha. from, from local from you know people on the ground I think support um, 
I think the beginning of our conversation was around, you know, what is it like in the Zimbabwean context? Film is an expensive thing. And I think mm-hmm. the way that local mm-hmm. people can support um, filmmakers, because we want, we really, really want to play a part in this industry growing. It's, it's really important for Zimbabweans, for us to tell our stories, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way that you can support that is by understanding, you know, all of the intricacies, how much it actually takes to make a film. And rather than trying to negotiate with the filmmaker, try and mm-hmm. find the funding to make it happen. It can happen. There is funding out there to make it happen. Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. where we're falling short is the filmmaker is putting forward, this is how much it costs. The client is then negotiating. And then to bring the for the filmmaker to make films in Zimbabwe. And so they either go and do something else or they're trying to juggle too many things and they're not able to hone in on their skill because they're too busy doing other things or they go and make films somewhere else, you know, and that's really sad. So I think for, um, for anyone who can afford to have a film made, or even if you can't, you know, like musicians like Flying Bungie, they've gone out and they've found that funding to then pay us to make a film. So anyone, anyone can do it. If you have a story that you want to tell, um, come talk to us and together we can put together a strategy to figure out how to get the funding so that everyone is paid correctly for their work um, so that it's sustainable for the artists and so that we're able to tell Zimbabwean stories. Mm. Kind of like all pieces working together. It's like people believing in the work itself, getting that funded, everyone getting paid what fair value for the work being done. Yes. But there's also distributors, whether that's foreign or local, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, wherever in the world, then buying it at the right price, that's fair value for everyone. Um, for sure. I think the future is going there. It's, it'll take a while, I think, to get... Not, not, we not say that. I think we'll get there. I think digital is very promising. In the, the, other, there's a, the world now, more than ever, I think, is hungrier for foreign content mm. uh, but we're seeing that from disney movies to pixar movies everywhere like it's, it's every everyone wants different flavors to eat and consume now so i think we're getting there and just kind of like you know for you guys to keep believing i know so i want to have this conversation because i i think the work you guys do is great and it's and you just have to keep believing that you know and then making it you know profitable as well mm-hmm. um to bring us full circle um with regards to the, I think two parts, the Zimbabwean story, I think I was saying to someone earlier, it's like we all have these pens and we're all writing our little past in this greater, broader narrative that is the Zimbabwean story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just doesn't start at 1980. It starts even way, way before that from great Zim- and, and, and before, right? Uh, we've gone through many challenges right now, felt a bit of blimps, mm-hmm. but it will live on far beyond us. But now is our moment in this Zimbabwean story. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing... From a character, you talked about representation earlier. Mm. One thing, for some reason, that I've never, I haven't seen enough representation of, is, uh, and not to bring race into it, but I think it's important to, to speak about, is white women represented on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found that very alarming. That like, and not just, I think everyone's important. Even as a part to play in the story, there's what black men, black women, color, Asian, everyone, everyone is. A, um, Apart from Kirsty Coventry, you never actually see women on screen 
Jamie Griffith is the only second person I've seen her. And she is just, she was born, you know, recently, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I found that really, like, alarming. So, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. I think my hope is that, you know, through the work that you do and some of the work that you guys will continue to do, is you, at least what I'm trying to do as well, is trying to tell the broad spectrum of stories, whether that's through yourself or any of the other people that I gave in the podcast. It's like, it's to reiterate this vision that like everyone has a part to play in crafting this next piece of this Zimbabwean story. So I hope you guys do it for, you know, for representation's sake, you know? Um, you know what I mean? Um, I don't know if you agree with that sentiment where there's not many white women are represented on screen in Zim. I don't know if you agree or am I, am I being... No, I'm not sure. You, you do agree. And actually, weirdly, it's not something that I've even thought about. I, I haven't even put too much um, thought into that, but you are, you're definitely right. Um, and mm. I think part of, you know, the, the music videos that we made for Amy Warren, for example, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. why we chose to for her to be in the video and tell those stories mm. was because mm. Amy is she's a real she's a real girl real Zimbabwean girl who comes from Springtown Bulawayo and Mm -hmm. both music videos in fact were kind of this manifestation of the dream world that she lives with in the context of of Bulawayo Um, Mm -hmm. and yeah I think something something in that was you know the the desire to tell that story was because you you just don't see those stories so yeah it's a really good Mm -hmm. Thank you for, yeah. for yeah. sparking that. For the spark. Yeah, you I mean you see Nick Price and you see all of yeah. these other guys on TV. Like I grew up watching Nick Price play golf. I said, wow, we can, you know, and you have all the other people. And Kirsty Coventry, I don't know, they just need to be more of everyone on screen. Yes. More of everyone, Absolutely. you know. Yeah. Um, I think it's important, regardless of social economic class, I think everyone has a part to play, you know. For sure. Um, and then my last question is... And speaking to the future, what does the shift in the Zimbabwean narrative look like for you for the better? Um, what is that? And you can say whatever you want to say in reference to that. Shift towards the better. I think mm. as soon as we, as people, can discover our shared humanity, we are going to move forward in leaps and bounds. You know, it's. I think we, we're still so segregated in Zimbabwe. Um, and it, Ooh, it big time. so sad and like we don't want to go into politics but politics has a huge part to play um, but mm-hmm. whether it be race whether it be um, economically we're, we're living you know tribally even we're living very um, disconnected from each other and we know it's, it's common knowledge that together we're stronger so I do feel that as soon as we discover our, our shared humanity through whatever that may be, um, I think it's, it's going to help us in a huge way. And we are seeing it. We're, we're definitely seeing it. I think Zimbabwe um, has, is coming from, from a very broken place, but there's so many exciting, beautiful things happening at the moment as a result of that. Mm. So, mm. so there's a lot to look forward to for the future, I think. Mm. It almost speaks to like you talked about coming from a broken place and beautiful things can can come out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I actually had, a, I had an interview with someone recently about this notion. How my my notion is that because 
every child is born like perfect and then sometimes you you break and you go through trauma in your life and then your your responsibility is to find ways to heal and then grow from that point mm-hmm. so similar to your ex you know your 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 accident when you at when you hurt your back you know sometimes we break but hopefully we can heal and grow with renewed understanding and learning from where we're coming from yeah. um so so yeah thank you so much for your time Kale. it's it's been super um, it's gone on longer than I, you know, I hope, but it's perfect. This is like, this has been great. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I think it's important and all the best for your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been wonderful and inspiring. To